Before we start the show, I want to give you an update on the last few weeks of the impact of Hurricane Harvey and the flooding here in Houston, Texas, where I live. Uh, first off, my family and I were safe. Our property is safe. We were not flooded. On Friday, August 25th, this Category 4 hurricane called Hurricane Harvey made landfall in Corpus Christi, which is four hours southeast of Houston, where I live. They predicted it would stall out, head back into the Gulf of Mexico, strengthen, and then head northeast towards Houston, and that's exactly what it did. Uh, there's what's known as the dirty side of a hurricane. It's the upper right-hand side uh, of a hurricane that carries the most moisture, the strongest winds, and that dirty side of the hurricane stalled over Houston, Texas for two and a half days, dropping nearly 50 inches of rainfall on the greater Houston area. Now, to truly understand the gravity of this, you have to understand that we normally get around 50 inches of rain in an entire year. With Harvey, we got that in two days. And this was in every way a record-breaking storm. Verified. It's verified. It's a record-breaking storm. There was massive catastrophic flooding all around Houston. Uh, many of our friends have lost everything, and several friends of ours, their houses are still underwater right now as I speak. And uh, many listeners have reached out to me directly via email, Twitter, Slack, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for caring. Uh, many have asked how they can help. Here are two websites where you can go and give money, uh, donate cleanup supplies, or even organize a crew and come here to Houston and help someone clean up. The first is youcaring.com slash jjwatt, and the second is bayoucityrelief.com. Both links will be in the show notes. Thank you. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative tech companies out there. Hired uses an algorithmic job matching tool in combination with a talent advocate who will walk you through the entire process of finding a better job. You might be looking for a more flexible work schedule, more money, or remote jobs so you can travel and see the world. You might be looking for opportunities at Facebook, Mixpanel, or Squarespace, or the many other top tech companies out there looking for engineers on Hired. You and your skills can be a valuable asset to any of these companies. You just have to take the first step. That first step is Hired.com slash changelog. Go there, learn more. Our listeners get a special $600 hiring bonus when you find your next opportunity on Hired. Once again, Hired.com slash changelog. Changelog Media, you're listening to The Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On this episode, I talk with Carolina Zor about community building, building remote-first teams, the hiring process in tech, product development, and the inclusivity factor of website performance. So let's start off the conversation with community building. You know, I think that many of us may go to conferences, many of us go out into the community, whether it's local or, you know, go into regional conferences, and we, we call this thing community, right? And and it's this word, there's people who blog about it, uh, everyone's trying to build it, everyone's trying to do it. What exactly is building community? What is community to you? 
Wow, that's a, a quite a loaded question to be the first one, I must say. Um, I've actually given a talk about community building and trying to define community at HybridConf, I think, three years ago. And it took me months to research how people define community. And I'm still unsure if I understood it correctly. But I think, um, especially in the tech industry, one thing that's important to point out is that community is something that's more than events and conferences. Um, as you've said, it's nice to go to those gatherings and have fun, um, go to parties and meetups, see some talks, but community spans beyond that. And I'm really willing to focus on um, going beyond that in a sense that we create community every single day. It's not necessarily just running an event that's one day, two days, or an evening. I want something that will actually last longer than that. So I really want to focus on creating, um, not only gathering people with same interests and same goals and same values together, um, but also uh, creating rules for um, being safe in those communities. That's something that I'm really um, interested in. So I would say trying to define a community, I would probably say it's obviously a group of people that have same interests, um, same values, same goals, and they pursue them together and individually as well. Um, but it's also a platform that's safe um, for everyone who's the part of, of that community. And that and by that, I mean um, mostly underrepresented groups. So that's interesting that you describe it on the second part as a platform to be safe. So... You're assuming that when people gather together that the uh, I'm, I'm also assuming this, too, so I'm not saying this is only you, but based on what you said there, that it should be a place where people are welcomed. People are safe. You shouldn't feel like you are a part of a community in which you're threatened. Right. Like that would be anti-community. Definitely. Definitely. Why do you think it happens so often now that, that it's that it's we're still kind of working through this gap of like safe to not safe? Do you think people are evolving how they describe and participate in community. What, what do you think is, where do you think we're at with this? I think it's a very complex problem and I wouldn't be nowhere near actually pinpointing where the root causes. But I think um, one of the things that I'm seeing is that the communities were never really totally safe or inclusive, but now uh, we have that platform, which is the internet where it's so easy to just go and kind of troll someone or be mean to someone mm -hmm. or be kind of harmful towards someone with um, a degree of being anonymous because those people who tend to do those things oftentimes are uh, hiding behind, you know, avatars and fake names, etc. Um, so I think it's just easier to um, be unsafe in a sense um, that people just use this platform to be ha ha ha, um, mm -hmm. you know, like kind of um, it's a joke or being abusive or being a troll. Um, so, yeah, this is just more pronunciated um, now that we have this great platform because people feel like they can hide behind it and no one will never know that like they're a 15 year old really angry behind their computer and locked into a room, <laughs> for example. Um, so I guess it just uh, it, it has become easier to um, be abusive or be harmful. And some of the platforms that we use. Frequently, like Twitter, don't really have the necessary tools to fight the abuse. It's tough, I guess, to be Twitter these days because they are not, I guess, from 
I'm assuming our perspective, you and I perspective are, uh, and maybe even most of the listeners listening to this have been potentially using Twitter for quite a long time. Like we would probably consider ourselves early adopters. Like we didn't join it when the voice started saying, Hey, go to Twitter and vote for your favorite candidate or, you know, whatever, you know, or get into politics or whatever. Like we were there probably originally whenever most of the Twitter scene was tech, you know, was, was, uh, the technology scene, the software development scene. Right. And they're in this position where they've grown over years and their business has not exactly stayed in alignment. And they've got this big Goliath next to them called Facebook. That's doing so much better and growing at such bigger numbers. And they've got to be basically the police to some degree for stopping abuse. Like I haven't delved far enough into where abuse happens and how it's being fought on Twitter. What, what do you know about that subject and how can you enlighten myself and, and the audience listening? Um, as far as I went with Twitter and abuse, um, when I've started being a little bit more proactive on Twitter and saying, so to say, massive air quotes, controversial things, mm, as in actually okay. talking about equality <laughs> and <laughs> feminism. Uh, so not really that controversial. Um, shouldn't I've started be, no. getting, it shouldn't be. Um, I've started getting a fair bit of abuse. Um, recently, um, a tweet of mine got a fair bit of exposure. It was about um, GitHub's ElectronConf um, that I've pointed out because um, I, they had an all-male lineup, which is absolutely unacceptable in this day, <laughs> 2017, especially with taking into account the history of GitHub. Um, that was fairly public, and I only pointed it out in a snarky comment, but it absolutely exploded. And first, I got a lot of support from the community saying this is absolutely unacceptable. But then it got deep, deep to 4chan and Reddit and Hacker News and Gamergate got to me and Trump supporters for some reason. I don't know, like weird, weird kind of people just trying to abuse me. And I've quickly learned that um, Twitter's uh, handle of abuse is just completely useless. They have a way of reporting tweets and reporting users, but they, in my experience, they never act on them. I don't know if they shadow ban them at this point. I know they have a tool for that, but I haven't seen it in action, to be honest. Um, so all you can do really is just block and mute them. But then someone else will join the conversation and bring up some other tweets. Mm. Uh, some clients aren't very good at support uh, supporting blocking. So you end up blocking someone on twitter.com, but then it doesn't block in tweetbot. So you end up seeing oh, wow. the abuse twice. It's just, it's not very good, to be honest. It's not where their priority is. Yeah, that's tough because you've, uh, I can't even attempt to break down how tough that is for Twitter, the platform to, to do that. Cause they've got, you know, they've had for, for years, third-party clients like Tweetbot, for example, like I'm a Tweetbot user. And I never thought that if you blocked on Twitter, that Tweetbot wouldn't recognize their block there as well so it seems kind of weird that it's like that that's seems like a big engineering issue where they should just fix that honestly it's just inconsistency so to say sometimes it actually works properly but mm -hmm. sometimes some of the people still surface it's very inconsistent so i feel like it it's either like third-party clients or just ipi problems i can't really speak because i don't i've never worked with twitter ipi so i don't know how how good it is so we spoke to the the sides of a community where, you know, it's a platform to be safe. Uh, let's talk about the side where you're trying to build. You mentioned that 
you don't have to be at a conference. Community doesn't happen exactly just face to face. It happens. I think you said every day. What did you mean by every day? Like, give me an example of what community building is every day or showing up to be part of community. Sure. Um, so I'm really into the whole diversity and inclusion part of community work. So on a day-to-day basis for me, it's mostly you leveraging the privilege that I have and leveraging my exposure to publish articles or uh, and educate people how to build better communities or run better events um, that are more inclusive or um, being a little bit more proactive uh, in the form of reaching out to people that I think could do a better job. For example, conferences that have only lineups or don't have code of conduct and they could do better because sometimes it's actually they just don't know any better which isn't good enough, but you can educate them and kind of coach them into being better, so to say. But some of them are just pure malice. I think Lambda Mm. is one of the greatest, as in the worst examples of that. I recall seeing some dust about that one. And I wasn't close enough to know exactly what was going down. And uh, we tend to be, when I say we, I mean the change log, our organization tends to be... uh, you know, not so much not cognizant of the negative side of, of things happening out there, but we try to focus and shine a spotlight on the positive things happening and to, that doesn't mean to shove the things that are negative under the rug and forget about them. That just means that, uh, you know, if it's negative or, you know, like the Lambda Con, for example, as you just mentioned, I went far enough to read into what happened there and to some degree, but I couldn't give a firsthand account of like, this is what happened. This is who did wrong. This is how the retroactiveness of this, and this is who was hurt, or this is who was the victim, or this is who, you know, I don't know all the details. I didn't know exactly what happened there. Can you kind of give maybe, maybe it's not worth going into. What do you think? Is it, is it worth going into? Um, I don't know. I mean, at this probably point, not, it, right? yeah, probably not. I mean, if someone wants to see how bad it can get, I recommend looking into it. That's um, an example of the, the worst you're saying. That's definitely some of the worst cases of like mismanagement in conferences and just bad intention that right. I've seen lately. And you mentioned the tweet that you put out recently that with they got some, I, I guess, a lot of retweets or a lot of communication back and forth about that, that the Electron Conference coming up had an all-male panel. Is that right? Yep. Is that still the case? We're, 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 I, I'm not ca- caught up on this conference or the lineup. I'm actually going to Google it right now while we're talking here. So, um, Actually, what happened right after the tweet got some traction. So the way it happened is it was a blissful Saturday here in Melbourne, a wonderful <laughs> city. I was at breakfast and uh, it came to my attention that is all my conference from GitHub, which to me um, is just so disappointing. They should know better. They have diversity people and with their history, especially, they should just not do that. But um, uh, yeah, so I just kind of angrily tweeted that they should do better. Congratulations on this not very good lineup. Um, and then just I just went on with my weekend plans. And then after a day or two, I've realized it has completely exploded and GitHub has already taken down uh, the lineup from their website um, saying that um, they're going to 
get back with on track with the conference once they find a suitable uh, lineup, which upset a lot of people. Wow, yeah. <laughs> um, and there was no public post-mortem or anything like that. Um, there was just the yeah, change on the website and they didn't announce anything whatsoever on their Twitter or blog posts, anything. And I've reached out to them, to the head of diversity of GitHub, and they've, um, they've decided they're not going to publicize what mistakes they've made. So they completely didn't really, um, they really wanted to have like public record of it happening in a way, I guess. And they didn't want to say, oh, openly, we've made a mistake and this is why it happened. Um, and we are fixing it right now. So um, to me, it was poorly handled, but um, I guess they're revisiting those choices. So that's uh, beneficial to the community. How far back was this, uh, this tweet? How, like, how current is this? Uh, days, weeks, uh, few weeks, few, few weeks, weeks. I would say I was on yeah. vacation last week. So that's why I'm, I'm sort of out of the loop yeah. big time. Cause like when I go on vacation, I do my best to disconnect. And, uh, so I'm assuming at least a couple weeks back, cause this is something I would have definitely heard about. And as you'd mentioned, uh, and listeners, you could probably go there now, uh, electronconf.com. It says we published a list of speakers that does not reflect the standards to which we hold ourselves. We will be postponing this event until we can deliver a more diverse slate of speakers. So you're saying that's the only artifact, essentially, the only feedback that we've gotten from GitHub about your tweet that essentially helped everyone else discover that this was an all-male panel. It's GitHub. They should know better. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, to me, it's just so disappointing. Like, If you have standards that you hold yourself against then that wouldn't happen in the first place mm. so where are your standards like i just i Let's, just can we pause really... there for a second though because that's i hear that and so the first thing i think about is is can can people make mistakes can companies make mistakes i would say definitely i mean i make mistakes all the time with all sorts of things but i think especially the irony that it's GitHub who had mm, like yeah. they had really public outings with diversity and horrible culture. So taking that into account and doing this, it just and I do hear accounts of people working there or people who have worked there. So um, right. that just adds up. That just adds up. Like I don't have anything against GitHub personally as a product. I think it's a great product. Um, I don't want to be mean to them publicly. I don't want to, you know, like I don't want to go in a fight with GitHub because that's my hobby. I just, the reason is that if you say that you have standards, then you have to live by those standards. Right. You have to have checks and balances. Yeah. You have to have somebody saying, okay, we're doing something. It's public. The community's involved. Is the community represented? Yeah. And especially in GitHub's case, like every single developer and a lot of designers are using GitHub. Um, this is a product that's basically representing our industry in a massive sense. So they have a responsibility to cultivate culture. Like this is their responsibility. So something like that just shouldn't happen. And they have people in full-time roles working on diversity. And I don't want to blame those people because I know it's a big company. Decisions get made and delegated down or up. And it might have been someone else's fault. I'm I'm not here to blame anyone. I'm just saying that they should have known better. Well, let's let's break this down then. Let's use this as this as an example of how should they have handled this? You know, what 
given what you had just said, there were, you know, they represent the community in a lot of sense, right? Like because they are who they are, they have a lot of responsibility. What, what do you think they could have done differently given the circumstances? Uh, I mean, every single time. So when I run events, um, I mostly explicitly use a call for speakers process, um, which obviously invites everyone to apply. And we worked very hard at JSConf and CSISConf Australia last year um, to make that process even better and to foster an anonymous process that will bring more women and more underrepresented groups um, into our conference, which is really tricky because, again, the process is anonymous. So definitely not only having a call for speakers, which I think they they had in some sense, um, that's a first step. And then secondly, obviously, you have to have a code of conduct. You have to have information about who is the organizer despite the organization. Like I actually want to see the faces of people who are organizing this event so I can see if the group of people that's organizing is diverse so I can look up their work, I can kind of be comforted. Um, with the fact that I know those people. Right. Um, so in this case, with the faces, you're saying don't just say GitHub's behind this. Say who yeah. from GitHub is behind this. Yeah, like okay. uh, it's not even GitHub specific. A lot of conferences say it's sponsored by this company or run by this company and right. some people. I want to know which people. So I definitely would urge conferences to actually publish um, about pages that actually talk about who specifically is behind the conference. So that information is easily accessible because that that makes it um, easier for underrepresented groups to feel safe and feel comfortable with applying. And then, of course, there are the anonymous um, call for speakers processes, offering coaching or even pointing to materials that are already online about how to write a proposal, how to prepare your talk. Um, Conferences that have um, other initiatives uh, for diversity and inclusion um, are also uh, great, such as having scholarships that for me as a person from an under, like for a person represented of an underrepresented group, uh, that's basically a guarantee that I know that people organizing this event mm. actually care about diversity. Like it's not copy pasting code of conduct because everyone caught up with that. So they know it has to be there. But to me, that doesn't mean anything at this point. Like ever, anyone can copy paste it and they do nothing else. Like that's pointless. Yeah. You, so you- if I hear you correctly, what you're seeing behind the the code of conduct that it shouldn't be, oh, let's go out there and see what the community, you know, what the standard is and let's copy it and paste it, put it on our site and boom, check that box. You're saying that it should be more intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, code of conduct has become a standard at this point. Basically, there are very few conferences that don't have code of conduct, but um, my question as an organizer, as a participant in conferences, as a speaker or as an attendee is, how do you enforce it if something bad happens? Do you have a plan? Have you coached your staff on how to handle that? Right. Do you have um, scholarships for underrepresented groups where you give out uh, tickets for free? Um, do you have um, gender neutral bathrooms? Do you have um, food that caters to all of the diets that people have who are attending your event? Do you um, have parties and side events that are not entirely focused on alcohol? All of those things. So there, there's a list of things that I'm actually working on releasing um, as an open source project, kind of like an conference, inclusive conference checklist uh, to help organizers go through it. But um, yeah, I would say that code of conduct is just literally tip of an iceberg. 
And a lot of women who have been working in progressing events and progressing inclusion and diversity events know and notice that as well, that code of conduct is only a beginning. And at this point, um, just having that is just not enough. Mm. I like that you mentioned that it's obviously not enough just to have it, but to educate the volunteers and or paid staff that are part of the conference, um, having a plan if something does go wrong and, and knowing how to actually act upon it. Uh, you'd mentioned you're coming up with uh, either resources or an ebook or something like that. I couldn't recall exactly what you said there, but is there anything out there like that now? Is that why you're making it? Is it because it's not out there currently any sort of inclusivity or safe space checklist? I would say there are a few resources. Um, I always defer to um, Ash Drin's work. Uh, she has done amazing work in the diversity and inclusion space. She's hosting a, a traveling conference called AlterConf mm-hmm. that um, caters to underrepresented groups, which is a great event. Um, so she has published extensive materials on diversity and inclusion in general and conference-wise as well. Um, there's the Geek Feminist uh, feminism wiki that has a lot of materials in that space and just blog posts scattered around if you look for them. Um, and then obviously you can, you can look up some events that just have a lot of visibility and really high standards, um, such as JSConf EU that I'm part of, JSConf Australia and CSSConfs as well, usually hold themselves against the same standards. So we try to do basically everything that's um, and this should be an industry standard and more, which is really hard work. Um, but yeah, I guess a long way around this question. The answer is there is no centralized resource that would be an ebook or a really long article saying these are the things that you should be doing. Go and do them, which is why I'm trying to start with a checklist that conference organizers can just look through and um, think which areas they should be focusing on. And then maybe in the future, I will publish a book. Uh, I have an outline of a um, inclusive events book, but I just honestly don't have the Mm. time and funds to focus on writing a book right now. (laughs) Mm. You do a lot of writing on medium and you seem to, um, it seems to me if I didn't know you and I didn't have this conversation with you and I didn't have a chance to ask you, you know, what your process is for determining what next steps you might take on something like this. It seems to me that your, your MO for doing this would be to publish something that strikes a chord with the community, get shared around. And it's sort of a gauge to see, is this something I should focus some time on? Um, and considering that, is that something you plan to do first? You think you'd blog about it first? I know you've covered some of these things to some degree in recent blog posts, but just not maybe to the depth you're probably planning on. Yeah, I was thinking about a short series of posts. Um, I know there's interest. I just honestly, um, to write a book, it takes months. Yeah. It would it would take months to produce. And uh, we all have jobs and we all try to have a life outside of those jobs. We have jobs? Um, what? <laughs> things to do responsible adults um, uh, yes I yeah. know right can't always have fun must must work not all fun yeah yeah so it's just hard to really juggle actual full-time work then working on a product and then some community building and activism and actually have some rest in the meantime um, I am considering maybe trying 
other avenues such as Patreon and try to um, actually get some monetary support so I can take time off to do that. Right. Uh, because I think it's worthy. Um, but again, it requires kind of uh, monetary support and focus on that to deliver something that's high quality. Do you have a flexibility in your full-time work to be able to, you know, even if it was for a stint of like two months or something like that, do you have the ability to step away? Is that, is that flexibility available to you? Not really, to be honest. (laughs) So even it's, so it's not even a money problem. It's more just a time problem and maybe even an energy problem. Like you have enough energy to do it. Yeah, there are, there are many, many things at play here. I'm in a really weird space right now, um, and I can predict a lot of changes in my life, personal and professional, this year. Um, so I, would, I guess I will just see how I go. But I really, I think it's really important, and I would really love to focus on that. So obviously, the next step could be a blog post. The, the next step could be, you know, the things you just talked about. But you've got some hurdles happening there. We're here. We're we're right here right now. What kind of actionable feedback or advice could you give to listeners that may be organizing a conference that could be do's and don'ts or must do's? I would definitely um, say that um, it's definitely difficult to get those materials that I've already mentioned um, to find something that will just straight up give you actionable advice. But I think there are quite a few events that are doing an amazing job. And JSConf Europe is one of them, CSSConf Europe as well. Um, I recall amazing things being done by XOXO back in Portland as well. Um, So I guess a homework for a future conference organizer or current conference organizer and a meetup organizer as well uh, would be just to look up those events, see what they've done. and try to implement that in their event. Uh, read what Ash is, uh, is writing about diversity and inclusion in event because, uh, at events because her writing is amazing and very, very actionable. Um, so these are resources that um, aren't too hard to find, but honestly, we all just have to kind of sit down and be willing to do that job and not expect others to do that job for us because that's fairly common. I get a lot of emails asking for free advice or free work in helping other events which is fine, but I'm just saying this knowledge is out there. We just have to sit down and actually um, actually parse it, find it, um, and try to implement it. So yeah, my advice would be uh, look up some amazing events uh, from um, JSConf family of events, jsconf.com, um, XOXO definitely, um, work of um, Ashton, and, and yeah, and try to slowly implement it in your event. It's, it's hard work, but um, it's definitely doable. After the break, Carolina and I talk about building teams, specifically teams that are remote first. We break down what that means, why it's important, and we also talk about the dark side of being a remote worker, the impact of real-time communications like Slack, maintaining work-life balance, being able to work eight, play eight, and sleep eight, something I try to do every single day. All this and more after the break. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server from ThoughtWorks that lets you model and visualize complex deployment workflows with ease. 
GoCD helps you automate and streamline your build, test, release cycle for reliable continuous delivery, promote trusted artifacts, see how your workflow really works, deploy any version anytime, run and rock your test, compare builds, take advantage of plugins, and so much more. Head to gocd.org slash changelog to learn more. So my background in terms of what you may know now is as a podcaster, right? Like running the changelog, doing what we do here. But prior to this, it, before I was, you know, a professional podcaster, so to speak, like somebody who did this full time, I was uh, primarily a designer, product manager, uh, UX designer. That would be the camp I camped out in, right? And I worked for this nonprofit called Pure Charity, still an awesome place to go, purecharity.com. And we started out there as, as a remote developer team. And part of the team was centralized in Rogers, Arkansas, and everyone else was distributed throughout. It just happened to be at the time, Texas and Missouri. So I don't know why those two states in the United States, but those two states. And, uh, and over time, as the company grew, we started to hire more people in what we call, in air quotes, in-house, right? In the, the localized office. Everyone else was distributed. And it started to turn into this us versus them scenario. And I don't know how we got there, but we attempted to build a remote. I thought we were trying to build a remote company, a remote distributed company. And it didn't seem that way. And at some point, it became an us versus them battle. And next thing you know, we're just, you know, it wasn't always at war. It just always seemed like there was some sort of anxiety between an us versus them scenario. And it was like developers trying to make the product and business, you know, trying to dictate where it should go. All this crazy stuff, right? But you've, you've written this deep blog post on building remote teams first. That's my, you know, my story, so to speak, into remote teams. And I can probably go deeper than that with you, but... Let's open that up. Let's talk about building remote teams. What are people doing right? What are people doing wrong? And what do you think about the story I just shared with you? Uh, that's that's a big topic. Um, so I've been, just to give a little bit of background, I've been working remotely for at least six years, I think. Um, before I moved to Melbourne, I was, uh, I was living in Krakow where I was born. And that's Central Europe, back in Poland. And, and I used, used to work uh, with mostly U.S. East and West Coast, which usually meant no overlap whatsoever. So late nights for meetings, uh, some pajama meetings, <laughs> uh, all the fun times. Um, and I kind of got into remote work by accident. I was just frustrated by the state of the industry in Poland. I was frustrated by low pay and nothing interesting coming up. So I kind of ventured into looking for something elsewhere, uh, other countries in Europe um, and US. And US was an obvious choice because technology industry there is just much bigger. Uh, so I had to learn quite quickly what remote actually meant and how to make it work for myself and the teams I was working with. And wow, in terms of advice, at that point, there was almost nothing, no resources. Um, I think the only thing that was available to read about remoteness was actually the book published by um, Basecamp's uh, co-founder, the remote, remote book, which I, I still book. would definitely recommend because it's great. 
Um, I've I've read portions of it, but I've mostly listened to it. I'm an Audible type of person. Like I will, I will buy four or five books from Audible and listen to them. You know that week before I'd read a book. I don't know why I'm like that, but I've I've listened to it and it's a phenomenal book. I think it's also a good book about running a company in general. Like it doesn't have to be remote specific. It talks about meetings and pointless meetings and pointlessly taking people's time without reason. Um, and I think that you can apply that advice to any organization, not necessarily remote. So I think that was the only resource available at that time. And then afterwards, a lot of companies popped up that were remote first, such as Buffer or Help Scout, that I think still kind of lead that space right now. They publish a lot of articles uh, quite frequently about remote culture working together in general, which I think um, is a great starting point if you're looking into. Um, starting a company i think it's harder when you transition um so as you said i think that's a fairly common um, thing to happen that you have um headquarters somewhere in the world and then you decide to hire remote workers and then it's this you versus them situation because they are so disconnected from everything that is happening on site that it's very difficult to make that work. Right. There would be inside conversations that we would miss there would be meetings we weren't invited to because we were you know, treated as, as optional, I guess, because we were remote and I'm like, well, Hey, we need to be in those meetings too, because if we don't, if we can't give our feedback into where you're trying to go or the business decisions you're trying to make, and we're developing, actively developing an, an, a non-existent product yet, then you need us at that table. And we were consistently not being invited or invited. And then because we were remote or for, I don't know if that's exactly the reason why, but for whatever reason, our opinions and our professional opinions were not, you know, they were, they were sort of respected in the moment and then, you know, behind closed doors thrown away. Like they would say one thing and then do another, you know? And uh, I guess I probably shouldn't say some of this stuff on the air because this is a podcast and I'm kind of forgetting that, but um, that's what happens though, right? Is, is in this scenario where you, where you build teams Today, right in today's world, technology worlds, where you're building a a product team, like building the web platform, anybody building things on the web, anything that touches the web, you've got to have a team that that can be remote. And if it, it seems like your position and things you're advocating for is building remote first, which is sort of this twist on it, not just remote, but remote first, as if like even if you have a headquarters, you should still act remote. Is that right? Yeah, I definitely love the remote first approach mostly because it gives you tremendous flexibility and right now i'm a person who is not married i don't have any children so i actually have a lot of time at my hands i can make decisions for fairly quickly and decide what i want to do with my day of my weekend so that's fairly convenient but i think remoteness um, is actually very helpful for people with families. You can spend more time together. You can be very attentive oh, yeah. uh, towards your partner and towards your children. I think it's it's great. Um, of course, there are downsides. As I've mentioned in that article, there are dark sides of uh, um, remote work that um, you have to be aware of and you have to uh, manage your, the distinction between life and work um, quite a bit. Um, but I think it's very empowering. And what really frustrates me is companies that advertise themselves as remote, but actually being 
something that I call like remote friendly rather than remote first. Mm -hmm. Um, So they would say, oh, you can work from anywhere, but actually it's only within this country anywhere, which is a fairly popular thing to see, not only in the US, but also Australia, um, which basically prevents you to like, if you're an immigrant in Australia, so to say, it prevents you from traveling extensively to see your family, which isn't really a happy place to be in. Yeah, family's kind of important, right? Yeah, so... um, the reason why I say remote first is because a lot of people like to say like, oh, we're cool, we're remote, uh, but they actually don't live up to the expectation that you would have of them. Like they have a bunch of rules that would be hidden somewhere in the HR documents that actually prevent you from, you know, having that flexibility. Do you think some of these things are stemming from policies or tools available that makes it hard? Like It seems like you're, your point there was work anywhere, but anywhere in the U S or anywhere in Australia, not to be able to, you know, live your, I think you're originally from Poland, right? Yes. So you probably want to go back to Poland to see family. Oh, definitely. And you can't, it sounds like. Um, I do, but I think, um, in those scenarios, um, I actually don't know how much leave you get in the U S but in Australia by law, it's four weeks per Um, year, which is a fair bit. But when you think that you're actually flying across the planet, the length of the planet, so to say, um, four weeks becomes nothing because it makes no sense to travel for less than two weeks. Um, And then you can make maybe one trip per year or two trips and it's all never enough to see everyone, to visit everyone. Um, So it becomes like a really kind of stressful position to be in. Because you can only go back once a year, basically. Yeah. You're sort of forced into it because of the distance traveled. Yeah. And there's a cost. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, to fly from here to come see you in Australia would be like at least 18 or 19 hours. Yeah. So that's, that's like a day, like an entire yeah. day on a plane. Not any fun for one uh, and two, just the time. Like who wants to spend 20 hours on a plane? No one. Right. <laughs> you get used to it, but yeah. And if you got like 10 days or 14 days of, of leave, uh, as you said, two weeks, minute, you said four weeks mandatory, but you know, you can do that. You know, that's a, you're spending two of the days traveling just on the plane. And then, then you've probably got some time going to and from the plane and all the decompression that you've got to do preparatory to go onto a plane and like, like, cause you don't just get off the plane and start partying, right? You got the plane and potentially maybe crash for like another 12 hours or something like that and recharge yeah. and then become a human again. Yeah. I had some trips that were entirely ruined by jet lag, like just entirely. Um, yeah. But answering the question, I think um, the lack of full support for being a remote for his company is uh, firstly policy. I think in the tech industry, we have so many tools. We have amazing engineers and designers and and managers. We are perfectly capable of executing on this. Some people just choose not to, and they just really like to micromanage people and control what they do as if they weren't adults, which which is something that just blows my mind, and it just annoys me like every day when I think about it. Um, But secondly, there's something else that I think goes unmentioned, but I think it's important from the company's standpoint, uh, which is tax. Um, So there are two problems from the the company standpoint and from the employee standpoint. If you're working remotely and you're in Europe, uh, you're, mm, let's say you're working with someone from New York, you're never an employee, you're just a consultant who happens to be working full time. 
you get no perks, you get no insurance or anything. You just get paid on a given day. Um, but that uh, creates a problem for the company, um, taking into account recent legislation in the US and other countries as well. You can't really hire consultants on a full-time basis. You will get in tax trouble. And if you're an employee for, let's say, an Australian company, you can't travel outside of Australia for more than, I think, three months a year because then you get, get into tax gray area, as in should you be take, uh, paying tax in Australia or where you travel to? And it all gets complicated. And I think people who write about being a digital nomad or... Um, yeah, I think digital nomad just makes it this is my favorite not word. Um, You're not a yeah, fan, it, I'm a, it sounds like. Uh, I'm not a fan of the whole fake glamour of digital nomad and just okay. saying digital nomad. <laughs> Although I, I definitely enjoyed the lifestyle and I think it's great that we have that possibility. But I think when people talk about like, it's so great, you can have no responsibilities and travel the time and see those beautiful places. I think actually there's a lot of logistics to executing on it. Uh, tax um, is one of them. And then security like insurance or um, in Australia, superannuation, which is basically your uh, retirement fund. All of those things you have to t uh, take care of if you're working remotely. Um, as effectively a full-time consultant because uh, companies who hire remotely oftentimes don't have an entity in every single country where they have people from. So that's like less glamorous side of remote that might prevent some companies from hiring people remotely. Yeah. It sounds like some of these things may be out of the company's ability to control though. Like you'd mentioned legislation for the United States or the law, which you mentioned in Australia, where you can't leave more than three weeks. Is it something that, is there something that companies can change to be more remote first or, or at least more um, respectful of the need to be able to not only travel the world for pleasure, but also for just to see family. I mean, just for the reasons why anybody should be able to, if given the right kind of job where you can not be in the presence of everybody else involved, be remote, which is that whole point. If you have that kind of job, then to allow that to happen, to take place. Yeah, I think I think as especially bigger companies have capabilities to have legal advice. Um, they have in-house legal advisors so they can figure out how long is it actually possible to be away from the country where you're actually employed at um and not get into trouble company wise and employee wise um and then just help those people go there and work from there i just it honestly bases on trust despite of, of, of obviously overcoming those issues the yeah. legal issues and tax issues uh and so on i i think it's about trust like let's not treat each other like children like we are adults um so trust people that they will do their work no matter where they are of course some people will fail at that but then you fire those people or you have reviews performance reviews with them and um you know you, you pointed out that it's not working out so there are ways of overcoming that and there are ways of um successfully um having remote first companies or um remote friendly companies and letting people just have their freedom and and be happy in their lives because that will create happier employees and that's what we want i think but it seems like a lot of companies are confused about that so the digital nomad this this whole idea it sounded like you said you weren't a fan of the the advocating the glamorous side of it what do you what do you mean by that um, I think I'm mostly not 
fun of the expression. I think something about it, it just sounds cheesy and horrible. And I can't really pinpoint what it is. Yeah, digital, digital nomad. Digital nomad. Uh, every single time I say it, it just icks me. I don't know. I can't really pinpoint. World um, traveler. I, I agree. I don't think that the term, like if I were that person, if I were doing that, I wouldn't call my, I, I think it's become common because that's the terminology people most associate to it. But I would, I guess the nomading is, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Because I feel similar to you, how you feel, but I don't feel exactly the same because I kind of get what nomad means. And it's like, well, I, maybe I wouldn't attach the digital part. I'd just be like, hey, I'm, I'm nomading right now. I'm traveling the world. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think I don't have a particular problem with the notion. Like I've traveled a bunch. I've spoken at many conferences. For two years, basically, I had no home. I was in my country for maybe like six months and then six months traveling. Uh, which was right, but I think long term it's not really sustainable. Like you, not only spend a lot of money traveling. Uh, secondly, it gets really lonely, and um, I think it's cool to look at people's Instagrams and like, oh my God, they're in all of those beaches in Thailand, as everyone oh, is. Um, like posting fancy photos, but I think um, especially you, yeah, you're a photographer. Like, yeah, I was. I have to pause you because I was on. Your, uh, your, ex I guess, would you call it your exposure site? Is that what you would call it? Yeah. I, I think, you know, you're a great example of like phenomenal. I was thinking like she's must've traveled all over and she's done all sorts of cool stuff and she takes phenomenal photos. Like I, I was like totally gushing over your work. It was, it was really good. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. And I'm a photographer myself. I, I put the, I think on your, on your site, um, what did you say about yourself? You, you crossed out the line hobbyist. I think at one point you may have been a hobbyist photographer and now you're just a photographer. I'm probably in the middle of hobbyist and photographer where I don't do it for a profession, but I really enjoy it. And I do take some pretty good photos. I think I'm in the same spot. I don't make money out of it, but I do love it. And I do have too much too expensive gear <laughs> stacked. If your camera is more than a thousand dollars and your lens is a thousand dollars, it's probably you're definitely not hobbyist anymore. You're yeah extreme enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, I that's definitely accurate. Yeah, I mean, I think my problem with it, if I have a problem with digital nomads or yeah, people traveling all the time, is that um, we tend to see only the positive side of that. Um, like it's so nice to be in all of those locations and you can take great photos that will make everyone that, you know, really envious. Uh, but I think it's actually quite hard to uh, maintain a work-life balance when you're traveling like that. Like you actually end up doing so much stuff that's, let's say, touristy or just trying to explore that you end up working nights or you end up uh, working too early, too much. Right. And you burn yourself out even. Yeah, so I think um, from that perspective, um, it's actually not very healthy. I personally love the idea of just of just taking a few months off and traveling, and I hope I will be able to do that in the near future. Uh, because I think trying to balance work and pleasure when traveling extensively is extremely hard, and I know I can manage it, like I'm capable of that. But I think it's challenging, and I honestly rather enjoy one and put the other one on hold, so to say. This is something that you touched on in the, in the blog post. We're going to link up in the show notes. Uh, it's the heading where it says work-life balance. I'm sure you're probably not looking at it, but I am. 
work-life balance as a remote worker, and you're kind of describing some of the dark sides. And this is one of those dark sides. But others you mentioned, uh, I guess maybe to counter the dark side would be to have a routine, uh, create no work zones so that no matter where you're at, it's not always like in work time, so to speak. Because I know that for me, uh, like you, you'd mentioned you've been a remote worker or someone who's worked remotely for six years now. I think for me, it's been since 2006. That's been... 11 years, I guess, you know, I'm in my 11th year of working either for myself or remotely. Uh, and that's crazy. Like 11 years, I've not gone into an office. Only one in one year of those 11 years. And this was for like maybe five months that I have a, in quotes, real job where I went into somebody's office and worked in their office. So that's like a few months out of 11 years. It's pretty much like I've, I've worked from home. You know, my home was my office, you know, state of mind. That's that's sort of tough to have that needing routine and having a work zone where work happens there, where you don't get trapped and like always feeling like you have to be productive, you know? Definitely. It's, it's really hard to disconnect, especially if you don't have um, a big apartment or a big house, then it becomes even more tricky. I'm lucky enough to actually have a room that's a separate office. Huge advocate of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually go there to work. It's like work happens in there. When I'm not in there, yeah. I'm not doing the work. Yeah. So, yeah, you might be on the couch, but you're actually just browsing Twitter and yeah. doing nothing. <laughs> you're not working. So that's the problem. With laptops, though, they kind of go with you anywhere. Right. <laughs> so you. you, you yeah. But you have to have the rule. Right. It, you have to be disciplined enough to say, if I'm going to be working, it's going to be in that room. It may still be a laptop. I'm not chained to that desk, but I, I do work in there and try to, to make it a rule where that happens probably 90% of the time. That's what I'd say to myself. Like there's one or two things that I do that aren't in this, this room, which I'm in now, that's work related. Like I'll do some work stuff outside of that room, but it's only a few tasks and I've sort of set a rule for myself. I, so I've, I know my boundaries basically is that. I think having a boundary can protect you from the dark side of like always feeling like you have to be working or have to be productive. Yeah, I think it's really important um, to make sure these are in place, especially if you're a solo founder or you're running a podcast of your own or you're self-employed. You kind of have this urge like there's so many things to do. I have to keep working all the time and you're working from home. Then you basically can't disconnect ever, which really negatively impacts your um your life, your mental state, um, the level of burnout you have. Um, yeah, I think it's really important. And it's also really important to find things that really make you happy and really make you disconnect. For me, that's going to yoga. For me, that's going to a coffee shop with a book, uh, no devices, and enjoying a cup of coffee with mm. a book, and, uh, which is really nice. That sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> going to a coffee shop with a book and no devices. So that's, that means you're leaving your phone at home too, right? Or is that is that a no-no? Uh, I usually have it with me, but I don't use it. So you act like it's not there. Good job. Yeah, I just don't care. I love reading paperback books. I think they're superior to digital, and I will keep my opinion forever. Um, yeah, I just, I just think, especially you know, in a remote scenario, it's so easy to find yourself like, oh, when was the last time I left home? Especially yeah. in winter. Uh, mm -hmm. Not for me, but I know people who actually ask themselves that question yeah 
and I say, well, that's not very good. Like you should at least go for a walk or like go to the store, go to a coffee shop, meet up with someone because you have to compensate for the lack of human interaction or interacting only with one or two people. I think you need the, the vitamin D too from the sun. You got to have that. Oh, like definitely. if not, then you got uh, bad things. What happened to your skin? I don't know. Right. Are you turning into Batman? I don't know. Something. Yeah. You change colors. Who knows? You just, or, or lack of color. Who knows what? But uh, like the, the close to community, uh, that conversation we had there, I'm going to ask you this question. So you, you'd got a couple companies mentioned here on, on the, on your blog post, but you'd mentioned a couple during this conversation. Help Scout was one of them. And I believe Buffer was another. What other companies could people look to, to emulate both one as somebody who's an employer or running their own company or two looking at employees within a company and saying, dude, can I model similar things? Can I follow their blogs? Could, you know, who was out there to model? I would say hands down Basecamp on not only remote, but just company culture um, in general. Um, these are my go-tos. Um, I would say definitely read, read whatever they're writing. They have amazing amounts and quality of advice, but not every single time you're able to adapt that to your own company. Like not all advice is actually universal. Um, I think it's just important to stay in touch with your employees. I think actually remoteness is one of the biggest tests that you can have on your organization in terms of your culture and how empathetic you are and how good of an employer and employee you are, uh, because that really tests your um, communication skills as well. Um, so yeah, I think just keep keep talking to your employees, keep making sure that the right processes are in place, but not too much process because that will actually hinder productivity. Um, so yeah, just make sure that you, you're listening to your employers and, um, take their feedback, what's working, what's not working, record your all hands meetings and publish them or publish transcripts in an email or in Slack or whatever Basecamp or whatever tool that you're using. Just make sure that everyone is getting the same pieces of information. That's how you are actually inclusive. And that's how you make sure that everyone is on the same page, which is what you want when you're running a company. I guess that's kind of like universal advice that you could apply to an organization. But yeah, there, there are a lot of materials out there. And I'm sure uh, anyone who's interested in that topic, uh, there's a lot of uh, posts on Medium as well about remote teams um, that you can find and kind of take inspiration from and just test um, some approaches and see if they work or not. You mentioned um, tools in that, that last bit there. Are there any particular tools that promise to make teams productive, but in the end simply hinder them? Is there any, anything that like, I know Slack is kind of getting a bad name. We just, in a recent uh, issue of Change Law Weekly, we linked out to a, a post that was basically how we quit Slack, you know, a why we quit Slack. And this whole real-time communication being remote, you you know, without the, without people being around you, it's you feel like you have to be attached to some sort of like digital tool that communicates or allows you to communicate. And I feel like Slack sometimes can get a bad name for that because it, it sort of is real time. You know, if you're not there, then you're missing the conversation. You're missing out, and that's the fear of missing out is a is a big issue for a lot of people, right? So, not to name that one in particular, but are there, are there any tools that are being used that hinder teams rather than actually make them more productive. I actually would totally name Slack. That's the first one that comes to mind for me because as 
I, I love the product. I think it's a great product and it, it's really helpful when you need a piece of information you need to pick someone and talk to them, but you don't really want to go in a hangout or um, whatever other, other software that you use for uh, video calls. Um, I think in those scenarios, it's great, but at bigger organizations where they have uh, 600 channels because people just make jokes and make silly, silly channels that are useless. Yeah. Like you have to go to a certain channel to, to tell the joke or something like that. Yeah, or just people make useless channels that are like I guess kind of a part of emulating the water cooler conversation culture, but on Slack, it's just um at some point in some organizations the amount of Slack channels is just ridiculous. And even if you have uh, 10 channels or 15 uh, and in a 300 people company, there's a lot of conversation happening. And if you're a person like me that doesn't like notifications or unread indicators, you get freaked out when you see that red uh, dot. Yes, the completionists. Yeah. Cannot have yes. an unchecked item, must complete list. Nah, Is that that's who you are it. then? Yes. That's uh, horrible. I hate it. Jared's the um, same way. If you were on the show today talking right now, he would be cackling and laughing because that is totally him. He, he cannot have badges. They, they must be, they must be done. The list must be completed. Yeah. It's, it's a really not, it's not a good space to be at, but I think, um, so it's partially great, but on the other hand, it's really distracting because there's just so much conversation happening that if you want to stay on top of it and you have the fear of missing out that you have to read it right now, it becomes really distracting for your work, like uh, destructive for your work. Well, if you're such an advocate, though, for being remote, how do you counter this Slack movement and the way remote teams are communicating? Like what what are some patterns that are, you know, that are productive or healthy to to be remote first, but not force everyone into this real time must be following along to not miss out uh, form of communication like Slack? What alternatives or what other ways do you suggest people to do? So I think in the remote teams with not a lot of time zone overlap, that problem is less pronounced because you only have two hours and then everyone goes quiet. Uh, at least that was my reality for years. So I actually got the entire day of uninterrupted work, well, which yeah, was great, uh, but also horrible if you actually had some pro- trouble and you needed some help or a piece of information that was missing. Um, so I guess that problem is somewhat mitigated, but I think maybe to try to avoid it um i definitely do like um email as a medium and i do like um i don't actually use basecamp personally but i think posting check-ins like daily check-ins what have i done today and this is what worried me and this is what i've succeeded at uh, mm-hmm. on basecamp in a form of a daily check-in is actually really valuable because you can stay in touch uh with your entire team and know how they're feeling personally and professionally uh, and you don't have to do it on Slack where it gets lost anyway and gives you massive FOMO. Uh, so I think maybe getting back to, so to say, our roots of like um, less instant methods of messaging, like, I don't know, Basecamp or other tools or just email. So you're advocating for the oldest form of communication we have on the Internet to be the primary. I wouldn't say it would be the primary, but I think if something is really important and no one should miss it, then it should not be in a Slack. Right. So don't put statuses like that that are important for other people to use as artifacts to check in with team members to put them in some sort of like place where they can get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, definitely. Put them into a base camp or an email or 
something that is, you know, not so fast paced. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, especially with the time zones, like that's, that's one thing that uh, I didn't really consider is like, if you don't have much of an overlap, then that means that your coworkers could be, you know, their time off or their time to, you know, not be working basically. So you don't get in quotes bugged by anybody or have distractions. You can be totally focused, but if you're in the same time zone, then you're sort of caught in this situation where, well, they're working, I'm working, maybe we're working together, maybe we're working independently. Either way, you know, we should be meeting. We should be talking about what we're doing, right? And so next thing you know, you're 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 on Skype, you're on a hangout and or even the Slack call and you're wasting time potentially, right, with a meeting. Yeah, because it's because it's so easy to just grab someone, you kind of assume that it's necessary, but oftentimes it's not. Uh, and we just failed to respect other people's time and kind of their headspace as well. We just kind of, hey, can you come and have a call with me or just in the office scenario, same thing. Someone just comes to your desk and start talking to you and two hours later, you've lost that time and you have to get back into your zone, which we know takes some time as mm-hmm. well. Smaller teams, though, don't have very fast paced slack. So I, I would say like 10 people, 15 people plus might be a fast slack. Uh, in terms of real-time communication, but maybe smaller teams may have you know, only a few members. So it's a little little less fast-paced. Something I had said at the end of this uh, inclusion we had in the recent Change Law Weekly for the blog post that was titled, This is the Story of Why We Quit Slack, I said at the end, it's sort of like this devil advocate approach, like, can we just exercise better self-control? Because for me, I personally don't have an issue with Slack. We, the changelog is a remote company. We're a remote team. Everyone, no one is in this office with me besides me. So, you know, we're a remote first company. Uh, We operate around all the things we just talked about. Um, But I don't feel chained to Slack every day to stay in communication with Jared or other team members. Um, Maybe it's because we're smaller and maybe we have less communication to actually do. But I kind of feel like maybe it's just a self-control problem. You know, like the FOMO part of it. What do you think? Oh, definitely. I think self-control is a big issue here. And we are quite (laughs) bad at handling it, so to say, especially now with all the notifications happening. There were a lot of articles about like how notifications on the web is affecting our attention span and and our controllability as well. So I would agree. And also, it's definitely easier with smaller teams um, to manage um, real-time conversations or uh, manage a backlog of conversation. That's easier. But at scale, at bigger companies, it just becomes ridiculous. It does become ridiculous. And maybe the bigger teams might be where it really becomes that way. Or even in communities, as as we talked about in the first part of the show. Uh, I don't know about you. How many community slacks are you involved in? Several? Mm, Right now, only one. Um, a local Australian one, but it's so massive that I still don't read most of it. I was in a few uh, kind of like women in tech slacks, but there were, there was so much backlog. I just couldn't possibly, I just couldn't possibly keep up with it. So I just left because it was just only giving me anxiety. Yeah. It's just overwhelming to be honest. Coming up after the break, Carolina and I talk about website performance and the impact it has on inclusivity. We discuss a problem that most Americans don't get, myself included, 
lack of bandwidth and the limited or slow internet connections out there. We have to be more aware of the weight and size of every page view we deliver. And Carolina shares an insight about time you won't want to miss. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location, and in seconds, deploy your virtual server. Drawworthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. we could talk about something that I think pretty much anybody on the internet cares about, which is website performance. Um, you work for a pretty interesting company, uh, Calibre doing a caliber, sorry, caliber. You told me earlier and I still read it as Calibre and I'm sure that anybody else might, but it's caliber. Um, doing web, website performance, making the web fast for everyone. And the, the last part there for everyone seems to be something that you're pretty uh, and most people should be pretty interested in is being inclusive. So that means that the web should perform well for anyone, right? Given, you know, the last part of the show, what can we cover around website performances, like uh, around caliber, what you're doing there making the website, making the web fast and including everybody in, in, the, in today's web. So I'm going to start with making a slight correction, if you don't mind me. Sure, uh, please. Caliber is actually um, kind of like a after hours project of mine. Uh, it's actually a company founded by my partner and I just end up helping out a fair bit because I'm really passionate about it. So I don't actually work full time on it. Um, but it's something that I'm really, uh, really passionate about. I, I love performance and I love advocating for the users. So it really aligns with my values, so to say. Um, and surprisingly enough, you've mentioned that everyone cares about performance. I can guarantee you that it's not true. Um, because if that was true, we would be really rich. Okay. <laughs> we aren't. Um, yeah, I think it's really surprising because you would assume that everyone in the tech industry should care about uh, web performance. So JavaScript performance, uh, front end performance, back end performance. But it's actually something that um, is oddly still not very popular, so to say. Um, it's very hard to convince people to um, make a case for it, to make a business case, to even sign up for a product that's a performance monitoring tool, which Caliber is, um, which we find quite um, astounding, so to say, because, again, you should you know, feel for your users and you should you should really care about them. And that's uh, that's a massive part of it. And I think a lot of people focus on um, the user experience part and on the business metrics. So um, sales, conversions, 
uh, and so forth, but they fail to recognize that, you know, sending two megs of JavaScript might not be optimal <laughs> and might actually prevent people from using your uh, product on a lower, um, you know, worse device than an iPhone 6, which is probably your phone because we are all developers and we all have money for a $1,000 phone or a $3,000 um, laptop. Um, so I really like to advocate for um, stepping out of... Um, the bubble, the bubble of developers and designers and people who are working in the in the industry who are usually well paid um, and can afford those high-end devices um, to actually try to experience the web as it is um, elsewhere. Uh, for example, in Australia, the internet is fairly slow. Um, the latency is absolutely horrifying. Um, and yeah, you would be surprised because Australia is a very like highly developed country. Um, one of the most uh, livable cities in the world are here, Sydney and Melbourne, but still we have bad internet. So you kind of take those things for granted and you don't care about performance, but you really, um, should be doing that. So yeah, I guess long way around what you just said. Um, I wish more people would care about performance, uh, but they really don't. And uh, we really have to do a lot of um, advocating and writing articles explaining why this is important and why we should care about it. Um, that's not really business oriented, but just kind of a part of trying to include everyone into um, the community of Internet users. Yeah. I don't know how I gapped that I thought you worked there full time. It just I guess my looking into you in preparation for this conversation was like, that's where she works. I just tweet about it a lot because I think it's a great product and it's like my little pet product, so to say, after hours product um, that I'm really passionate about. So I guess that's how you can gather. Yeah, I was like, full time gig. This is what you're doing. I was like, all right, it looks cool. I mean, you uh, it's certainly a nice site. I imagine that you're the designer behind it. Is that correct? Um, I did do a fair bit of design lately, but you know, it's, it's really difficult to um, basically run a company that's at like early stages, but quite high growth and trying to do so many things because you basically end up being like the marketer, the salesperson, the front developer, the designer. Oh yeah. So you've got to hire the people to do things because you're so busy doing all the things. Yeah. So it's a really interesting, yeah, I get yeah it. it's an interesting space to be at. Um, but yeah, long story, long story short, I really, I'm really passionate about web performance. I always was, and I think it ties back nicely to my overall notion to be more inclusive because I strongly believe that performance is a pillar of user experience and user experience is one of the most important um things that we should care about in our jobs like that's the you know and it's not as far to go to like oh we need animations that's what user experience is no it's how fast i can use your app it's how much data you're using on my plan and how much i will pay for it oh um, yeah those are those are the rough words so i can you mentioned that australia has slow internet well the u.s has slow internet when you exceed your bandwidth okay <laughs> That's the caveat there is, is I was on vacation recently, went over the amount of data that I had accounted for me. And so then they, they took me from 4G to 3G and even 3G was really, really slow. Like, I think that they lied. I don't think it was 3G. I think it was like 0G or something like that was the thing because it was impossibly slow. And it, it helps me have empathy for what you're talking about because... All too often are we in a bubble of fast internet. Um, at least that's my 
experience here in the United States, Houston, Texas, where I live. Um, but then, you know, going over that data limit and being throttled, I was like, how in the world do people use the web? And then, then I'm thinking about, okay, well, if I'm paying for data overage, now I'm counting, you know, I, I wanted to know, you know, like just leaving my phone idle, is it consuming data? You know, cause like I had maybe four gigs left of the additional five I bought for, you know, way too much money to have an additional five gigs. And I was just thinking like people really should care more about the weight and size of every page viewer, every request, everything you do, checking email even. It was, it was mind boggling. I couldn't take it. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I think it's really important to step out of the bubble of um, fast internet, expensive devices that are like high end and, you know, high speed internet. Like it's really important to gain that perspective and, user empathy. And yeah, I mean, so often you see up, up updates for iPhone for like 300 megs for a bug fix. It's just mind boggling. And I think the page width uh, in web apps and websites is one thing. And then another thing is actually the parse and compile of that code, which also takes up the device's CPU and on mobiles and tablets that becomes um, cumbersome. So we just fail to think about those things, but there are quite a few people in the performance world, like Adias Mani, um, another Chrome developer um, relations people that are doing amazing work on that and trying to build tools um, to help you audit your, your apps and websites and try to advocate for understanding performance better. It's just that performance as a topic is still not gaining enough traction because it's just not glamorous and you can't prove well, you don't want to hear the arguments for a business case behind it. And I think that's the reason why um, I guess people are not prioritizing it enough. Uh, but I think we absolutely should. Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, I, I guess unless you step out of that bubble, only then if you're trapped or stuck or forever in that bubble, it's hard to see the outside. And the outside being slower internet uh, you know, less performable uh, devices, things like that. It's really hard to even consider that it should be a concern because you're in a position of, well, progress, right? I want the touch ID. I want these new, whatever the things are, you know, like the latest processor or the newest, coolest screen that goes edge to edge or what, you know, whatever it is that's attracting us to that future, to that innovative thing. And so we're attracted to this constantly moving uh, in the name of progress scenario when there's so many people still catching up, you know, or, or using devices that cost less. So therefore they perform not quite as well as, you know, an expensive iPhone six or seven or something like that. Like it mentioned, you know, it's just, it's just so hard to, to have that empathy, but I think it definitely takes that to change. How do we force people to get that? Well, I think, I think there are, there are two ways that you can do it. You can first start tracking performance actively and see how you're doing. And you probably will be negatively surprised, <laughs> uh, which is, I guess is a good thing because there are tools uh, nowadays, open source tools like Lighthouse or um, paid services like Calibrate that will actually give you actionable advice that you can just sit down with your developer and implement and it will be better. Uh, and you can see um, the improvements in performance metrics and probably business metrics as well. 
Um, so that's one thing that you can do. And then um, another uh, another angle on that is just um, educating people. So keep posting um, business cases of you know performance gains that actually cause. Uh, more revenue or less um, more conversions or less dropouts rates and just remember about the fact that at the end as designers and developers and project managers and so on we are kind of in charge of people's time which is the most valuable asset so by creating an app or a website or writing an article we are taking someone's time that they are spending in our app or reading our thing so I think that's a very responsible, like it's, it's a mission. It's something that we do every single day, but maybe we don't think about it that way. But it's it's a very important and kind of like a loaded thing that we do, but we don't realize how um, what responsibility it carries. Um, so I think we should be really wary of how we use that time, which ties back to, well, let's make it a performance. So someone can come into our app, do their thing, and go about their life because that's ultimately the thing. Like it's not about keeping them in your app and just engagement. That's not what it should be about. It should be about them achieving their goals and moving on to actually enjoying their life. So that's what we should be helping them do in terms of user experience in general, which uh, web performance is a part of. Yeah. I like that. Like it said, they're being in charge of their time. I'd never really considered that aspect of it myself. I mean, that's the number one resource we all have, right? Like someone right now is dedicating some portion of their time to listen to this conversation with us. And you're right. You you have to totally respect that and feel responsible for making sure that that time is well spent in a podcast sense like this. And the participation of building a service or a website or a web app or a native application, whatever it might be, you definitely have to keep that in mind. I think we're in a world though where it's really hard to understand like the next update for this app is a hundred megs or just to download it and install it as a hundred megs. And when you're on a limited data plan or you're throttled, no one really not, I, would, I shouldn't say no one. It's, it's hard to, to make the case that this shouldn't be a hundred. It should be 50 or can we make it smaller? Cause it's like, what percentage of the world does this really impact or does it impact me? So I don't care. Right. I move on. And that's, I think is, is the hard sell of this kind of situation is like, if it doesn't impact me, I don't care. I mean, I care personally, but it's like, that's the mentality of whomever might be in charge of making change. You know, I think some of the people are just lacking the overall context of internet connectivity. Um, So they don't, look at those stats because stats are boring or I don't know, they have other things to do, but only 50% of people are actually connected right now. So only 50% are using the internet. To me, that's just mind blowing. So my question would be, what is preventing the other people of getting connected? And then in some countries, downloading a Facebook app update, which is like 200 megs or 300 megs would be, there's like months wage to buy that data on the plan in their country. Like these are stats that you can look up in doing some research or reading the Akamai Internet Connectivity Report, which is quite lengthy, but very fascinating. And you can learn about those things, like how much data does it take to load the Verge a hundred times? Well, a lot, because it's a very heavy website. And in some countries you would have to work seven hours for that or um, 24 hours. So- Keep it, right? I would never even do it if it, if it cost me a month's wage 
biggest culprits probably, you know, online ads, display ads, huge amounts of JavaScript. We've talked about that with Brennan Ike on, on an episode of request for commits, the, you know, perf- web performance, the weight of the website, all these different things that happen, the performance of the device because of all the, you know, JavaScript running in the browser that doesn't really impact the goal of the page. It's just there to display an ad so it can sell you something. Yeah. Technically sustain that website, but you know, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So I think, I think if people maybe had more context in how connected we are currently and how the devices look and how is, how expensive it is to have a plan and how much, data you get per month, um, they maybe would be more careful about what they ship to their users. I don't know when Verizon's on TV and they say Verizon unlimited, uh, it's like, it's like when you say something, it's, it's true kind of thing. You know, it's like, well, Hey, Verizon's unlimited or Sprint's unlimited or AT, AT AT&T's unlimited, or, you know, name your internet provider slash internet connector, ISP, wherever in the world unlimited, you kind of feel like everybody else has the same access, but they don't. And that's, that's the part that I don't want to be the Debbie downer, but that's, that's the part for me is like, it's just such a hard battle to fight, but I'm glad you're fighting it because you seem very passionate about it and we need people fighting for it. That's for Uh, sure. I'm trying. I'm trying. (laughs) Do you, do you get that though? Like that, because you know, one advertiser says unlimited and then the next thing they, that, that, becomes the accepted norm. Yeah, definitely. I would say in like some of the first world countries, yes, but in Australia, there's no provider with unlimited no. data as far as I know. And even back in Poland, there isn't one. You can get data very cheaply, but um, unlimited isn't a thing. That's a shame because I would say uh, when that not being accessible, isn't the shame. The shame part of that is that if you live in the bubble, right. And you don't look outside the bubble, it's hard to recognize that that isn't the scenario for someone else. You know what I mean? So like if for me having Verizon unlimited is, is accessible and I never look outside the bubble to see if it's accessible to you, I can't empathize with your position or your scenario, your, your circumstance. If I don't look outside that bubble, I never get that perspective and we need that. Definitely. I think actually everything that we talked about um, today ties back on kind of trying to challenge yourself and question yourself in a way. Like, is the thing that I'm doing actually the industry standard? Should it be the industry standard? Is this inclusive of everyone? Um, Am I making the web a better place? Like, I I think that should be a part of our daily um, job as designers and developers and builders of the web. Um, And oftentimes I don't see that happening. So I wish more people were kind of challenging themselves in that way and um, asking those questions and kind of advocating for not only their users who are actually maybe paying their money, but just underrepresented communities. I couldn't have said it better myself. And that's that's the perfect place to leave this conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. It was it was so awesome to meet you, have this conversation and dig deep into all these passions you have and certainly open my eyes to some new scenarios and I I like the idea challenge yourself and uh, we'll leave it there so thank you very much thank you for having me alright thank you for tuning into the change log this week if you enjoyed the show share it with a friend read us on Apple Podcasts 
and thanks to our sponsors, Hired, Linode, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, at to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers at linode.com slash changelog. Check them out, support the show. This episode was hosted by myself, Adam Stukowiak, and it's edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelaw.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.